This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. Sometime in the 10th century, in what was known as Song Dynasty China, a monk asked Master Zhao Zhou Kongshen, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhou responded, Mo. And of course, this is probably the best known koan in Zen. It is called the gateless gate, the iron ball of doubt. And, you know, this simple dialogue has been stopping Zen students in their tracks for over a thousand years. It is the first formal koan in the, in the formal koan collections. The, the gateless gate is, has the shortest version of it. And it tends to be the first koan that Zen students work with, not exclusively, but it tends to be the first koan, the opening koan. And ironically, it has the longest commentary of all the koans in all of the koan collections. And ironic because by its nature, Mu gives you nothing to hold on to. It's said to have no flavor. There is no, no point that you can hold on to. There is nothing to intellectualize. And that's exactly its point. And that is why it tends to be the first koan. Because no amount of commentaries, of explanations, of examples will help you to understand Mu. The only way to see Mu is to be Mu with your whole body and mind. And how to do that is exactly what you're learning as you're working on it. You're learning to embody a question, a moment of experience, the great doubt. And you're learning to pass through a gate that has no boundaries. And so in the beginning, you can't even tell where it is. In the beginning, you don't even understand the question. And so that first work on Mu is a little bit like, like dowsing, right? You're, you're carrying your rod and you're walking around a little lost, just trying to sense something under you. Where are you standing? Something that will tell you this is where to look. And because it has no flavor and it has no shape, it has no frame on which you can hang an intellectual discourse. That's its power. And because of the kind of question that it is, what it's drawing out of you, when you see the nature of Mu, it changes everything. Koan is the Japanese for public record. 
and I was reading a little bit more about that, and it's interesting. So it refers to, you know, public public law, and it's a reference to the government records. And so it's basically saying it's based on something that goes beyond your your personal, your private opinion. A koan is a pointer to reality. And so your opinions about them, your feelings about them, although they're not irrelevant, they're not the point either. And that at first, you know, having to find your way through to even enter, I would say it's actually probably the, the bulk of the work. And as I was thinking of this, I was reminded of a story. It's in, it's in, the, in, in the Cohen collections. I don't remember which one, but a fisherman who goes out to sea day after day after day without catching anything. And one day he gets lucky and brings in a huge catch early one morning. And so very quickly he takes some charcoal and he marks a, 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 an X on the side of his boat. And when he gets home, his wife says, you know, what, what's that X? And he says, well, it's to mark the spot. I found this spot where this great school of fish was, and I want to make sure not to miss it. That's what we try to do. That's what we tried to do for a long time, I would say, with koans. We're find somewhere where we can say here. And the koan, if it's a koan that is working well, is, is essentially pulling the rug out from under you, my teacher used to say. And it pulls out the rug. I mean, really, the teacher does that. Every time you go in and you present a koan, the teacher says, no, look closer, look deeper pulls out the rug out from under you and you fall. And the teacher rushes over, pulls you up, dusts you off and says, okay, go on your way, try again. And you fall again and you fall again until one day the teacher pulls out the rug and you don't fall. And then you understand that that spot is everywhere. That you were under no danger of losing it, of missing it. And, you know, sometimes students will ask me, you know, is there a right or a wrong answer to a koan, right? Because, you know, if, if they're being rejected over and over again, it was like, well, so there's something specific that you're looking for. And, you know, the, really the answer is yes and no. It is possible that different people will present a koan differently. But there is an underlying principle that a teacher is looking for, you know, to make sure that the student has seen, has seen that bit of reality according to how the tradition has taught it, right? And so different lineages will um, sometimes work with koan slightly differently. But the underlying principle is the same, right? The ground that you're walking on is the same. And it might just be that, you know, they'll, they'll point to a particular spot that they want you to look at. And Shugan Roshi told me the story more than once that in his training, there were times when he saw a koan very deeply, 
very powerfully. And then he went in, he presented it to his teacher, and he was turned down. He had seen something true, but it was not what the koan was pointing to. And so a koan is, is it's drawing out of you and it's asking you to express an aspect of reality, right? And in that way, it's not subjective and it's certainly not personal, right? So when people say, I feel that, well, it felt to me like not a skillful way to begin your presentation of a koan. As I said, it doesn't exclude how you feel, but it's not about how you feel. It's much deeper than that. The first koans began to be recorded around 7th century, Tang Dynasty, China, before the Song Dynasty, in the golden age of Zen. Monasteries were thriving, there were teachers everywhere, and there was a lot of traveling, right? So there was a lot of, of um, cross-pollination, if you will, between the different lineages. And so the teachers started writing down some of these better known exchanges and began adding commentaries to them. And that's actually what makes a koan. It's not just that so-and-so had a, an encounter with so-and-so, but that somebody noticed and then began to, to comment on them. And this is then how they became systematized and they became a way of testing a student's or another teacher's understanding, right? Because in some way, you know, spiritual practice is difficult to measure by definition. And so how do you know if a student is progressing? Well, there are different ways to do that. In the Zen school, one very particular way is through Cohen introspection, Cohen training. I actually had a conversation with a good friend not long ago who was asking, how can it be that such and such a person, person we know in common, has advanced in their Cohen training and yet is acting in this and this and this way? And my answer, which I think did not satisfy him very much, was, you know, a teacher will only see what you bring to them. We will only see what you bring to us. And there is no way for me, for example, in this case, to know what it is that you do in your everyday life, how you treat your partner, your child, the people around the corner, I hope that from what I see of you and what you bring to me, that there is a congruency, right, between, certainly if we're doing koans together, that there's, that there's, there's, what we're doing here reflects what's happening in your life, but often it doesn't. I've spoken about this in the past. Sometimes there are gaps, sometimes there are big gaps. And that is why it's incumbent upon the student, each of us, to make sure that what we're seeing on the cushion is translating into our everyday lives. And it is part of the way that I've been, that I've been now working to really stress 
and and do what I can to make sure that it's happening. At least, I, I can't make sure that it happens, but to make sure that you have that in your mind to do that work. And so Collins start 6th century, 6th, 7th century, and then during the Song Dynasty, around 900, the, the, the use of what's called a wato, a single phrase or sometimes a single word was introduced. And here, please take note, because this is really pointing to the essence. The wato is pointing to the essence of the koan. There are koans that are very simple. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Mu. Well, it's not simple at all, but apparently. One question, one answer. There are koans that are very long. And so part of what the Watto is doing, which you need to identify, which is the most important phrase here, what is the point where I need to focus, what it's doing is to help you get rid of all the debris. Let's say that you're in a shipwreck. And past the, the initial mayhem, you find yourself floating in the ocean. And a few hundred feet from you is a raft. But surrounding it is all this debris from the wreck. All this flotsam and jetsam that you must get through in order to get to the raft. Well, the first thing you need to do is to distinguish the debris from the raft. And then you have to swim past it, past everything that is not the raft, in order to save your life. That is exactly how a koan works. Think of a difficult conversation you have with someone. And how, if it, especially if it gets very involved, or if it has, if it has a very strong emotional charge to it, how in the middle of it you can kind of get lost, right? It's like, where am I? This used to happen to me all the time. You know, you're wrapped up, you're in the middle of it. And then all of a sudden you can't find your way through. What did the person say? What are they actually saying? What am I hearing? And to begin to train in discerning what is the point, what's the crux, what is the spot? The X that marks the spot is an incredibly useful skill. The, the downside of koans, I mentioned, I think, before the story, um, my teacher told the story of somebody placing a recorder in the dog sunroom. And that somebody published a book that had all the standardized uh, answers to the koans. And I remember thinking to myself, well, where would I have to be to feel that that is more important than actually seeing the koan? That it would be more important for me to pass what do I think I need in that moment when I'm choosing the standard answer, the known answer? 
Why do I feel it's more important to be someone than to be free? And so, of course, in that moment, it becomes about self. It becomes about power, not about liberation. But if you do want to be free, then that gateless gate is providing you with an entry point. And so here, the monk asks Zhao does the dog have Buddha nature? Now, in the Nirvana Sutra, which was a Mahayana Sutra, around 5th century, the accepted teaching was that all beings have Buddha nature, all sentient beings. And that later was extended, and I couldn't find the source of it, but certainly Dogen speaks of it, and I believe Mazu also, that all things, in fact, are reflecting, are expressing Buddha nature. Tiles, walls, pebbles are the direct manifestation of that awakened nature. So a, a rock perhaps doesn't wake up the same way that we, that we do, but perhaps a rock doesn't need to, because a rock is perfectly itself. And the monk asking Zhao Zhou had to know this. All things have but a nature. And so then why does he ask if a dog also has it? Is it that some part of him is not sure? Some part of him is wondering, well, are there any instances where Buddha nature is not present? If it's a grungy street dog, if it's a grungy street monk, are you excluded from this bright, luminous awareness? Can you do something that will ban you from Buddhahood? Right? So you have to get into the mind of the monk, because the koan isn't telling you this. And it's not a hypothetical question for him. If he's asking the great Master Zhao Zhou, I'm sure this was not a hypothetical questions. question. And think of how many times have you told yourself, enlightenment is not for me. I mean, not suffering too much, sure. But Buddhahood? Uh, no. I mean, some of you, in fact, have told me that in so many words. It's too abstract, too distant, too unattainable. But it's none of these things. Liberation is not abstract, is not distant, and it's most definitely attainable. because it is no other than our own nature. It doesn't come from the outside. Nobody can give it to you, and nobody can take it away. You could even have an insight and then decide you're not into this Buddhist thing and lose yourself, let's say, in, you know, drinking, clouding the mind in whatever way, you still would not lose. Certainly what, what, you, what is inherently yours. You might not have access to it, but you would not lose it. Now, maybe the monk is thinking all or some of these things. 
And so Zhao Zhu needs to know, why is he asking this question? What is the question behind the question? What does he want to know? And good for him that he wants to know. He must have heard that teaching, all beings have but a nature. And he didn't just take it on faith, he's asking. And you can be sure that in his case, the question, the question is personal. And Zhao Zhou, contrary to every expectation, says, Mu, no, not, or nothingness. And the question that we're asked to sit with is, what is Mu? Notice the question is not, why did Zhao Zhou say Mu? We're asked to enter the not directly. You're not being asked to say, well, all, all beings have but a nature. Why is this an exception? You're not being asked for an explanation. You're asked to become Mu and to then express it. Where is Mu? What is it? When did it come to be? And, you know, maybe Mu is the first koan because it teaches us to sit with nothingness. One of my favorite koans starts sitting in a room in absolute silence, mind source unmoved, filled, like still water. So in order to be Mu or any other koan, you have to be silence first. You have to be stillness first. You have to let the debris settle. Right? Otherwise, you get caught in it. Otherwise, you might drown in it. And so in the 300 koan Shibugenso, the koan is longer, and it has both the yes and no answers. A monk asks, does a dog have better nature? Zhao Zhou says, yes. Well, if so, how does it get into its skin bag? If it has but a nature, why is it a dog? And Zhao Zhu says, it intentionally offends. Another monk asks, does a dog have but a nature? Zhao Zhu says, no. All sentient beings have but a nature. How come a dog, a dog doesn't? So in this version, the, the, the monk actually asks, how come? And Zhao Zhu says, because it has karmic consciousness. And so someone took just the first, well, here, I guess, is the second part of the koan, but that first um, doubt and presented it as the entry point. And Jaiju is responding to each of the monks. He's meeting them where they are right? answering the question behind the question. And he maybe knows them, right? Maybe he lives with them. Maybe he eats with them. Maybe he studies with them. He knows their hang-ups. He knows their doubts. And that's what he's addressing. In the sutras, it says that the Buddha always responded to a questioner according to their capacity. He could see where they were, right? Where they were coming from. 
and he met them there. And that's why it doesn't work for the answers to be standardized. And I'm not contradicting myself. You know, earlier I said, well, it's not personal. It's not, but you can't ignore the person either. You see? There, there are accounts in which a teacher, a student asks a teacher, what is mind? And Mazu says, mind is Buddha. And then a day later, another person comes and says, what is mind? And Mazu says, mind is not Buddha. No mind, no Buddha. So what is happening? And all of this, really all of it, so that we can enter our lives more fully. Once you learn how to begin to grapple with a question like this and not get discouraged, maybe that's the most, <laughs> maybe not the most important thing, but one of the most important things about koan study is to not get discouraged because most of the time you won't see it. And to not think of that as a failure, but to think of it as an opportunity. There is more for me to see. There is more for me to realize. There's more for me to understand. And so once you learn how to grapple with a question like this, then you can grapple with chronic illness, with the impending death of someone who's close to you. With the deterioration of your mind, of your body, or someone else's mind and body. Old age, sickness, and death. The reason I like to go back, you know, to the sutras and speak of them um, is to tie, to make the, this, this more deliberate connection. Because sometimes, you know, if we just, just focus on the koans, it just seems like the, it, they become a, a self, you know, it's like an enclosed system. And we can divorce them from life. And really, the koans are saying exactly the same things that the sutras are saying. They're just saying them in a very direct, very pointed way. And then sometimes you have to do the work of, of retracing your steps and connecting the dots. And even if you never do a single formal koan in your life, every time you bring a question to me, and it's a, a hard question. It's something you really want to understand, you really want to see. That is a koan. Every time you're not satisfied 
with an easy answer. Every time you're willing to go through the discomfort of, of digging deep, of not assuming you know, and in being in the, in the very uncomfortable place of not knowing, you're working with a koan. Whether it's, you know, a particular habit pattern you have not been able to change and you want to see it more clearly, you want to understand, you want to shift it. A fear that you have. Or you just want to be more in your life. This is one way to learn how to do that. And the thing about Mu is that it churns everything up. Right? It, it, all, all the stuff that is, well, that is unresolved or that it still needs clarifying will come up when you work with Mu. So if you are working on it and, it and it's taking a little bit of time, realize that, yes, that's what happens. I mean, remember, we're speaking about transformation. If you let it, if you let them, these koans will transform your life. There's a Celtic fairy tale. It was a young woman who on a stormy night uh, takes shelter in the house of strangers. And in the way of all good tales, there's something just a little in this one. And so when she goes in, the, the, it's an older couple who tell her, yes, we will take you in. We will give you shelter tonight, but under one condition. And the young woman says, yes, tell me what it is. And they say, well, in the other room, our son is laid out. He died yesterday, and we've been watching over his body. And we ask that you do that all night, and that you not take your eyes off of him, no matter what. They don't say what will happen if she, if she can't do that. But she immediately senses that on this depends her life. And so she says, yes, I will do it. She vows to sit with him all night and not take her eyes off him. So she begins. An hour passes, another. The night gets darker around them. And then just before dawn, the man opens his eyes and sits up and stares at her. And she stares back. And because she promised she keeps her eye on him, so when he stands up, goes to the window, jumps out, and starts flying, she, without stopping to think, runs after him, holds on for dear life, and off she goes with him. And the man crosses the quaking bog, and he goes through a burning forest, 
and he enters the cave of terror and climbs the hill of glass. And from all the way to the top of the hill, he drops into the Dead Sea. And because the young woman has promised to fasten her heart onto this unknown, she follows him steadily. Remember, she vowed to not look away, to not let herself get swayed, no matter what else appeared before her. No matter what fear, what doubt, what hesitation came up. And she just stays. And so at the end of this incredible night, the dead man and the woman return where they began. And then she learns that through her unmovable vow, she's released him from a spell. And he can now reveal his true face, which is the face of vast, limitless, unconditional love, which is what you see, which is what you see when you go deep which is what you feel when you, when you enter nothingness. And in that moment, the young woman knows there is nothing missing. There is nothing missing anywhere in the world. This is Mo. This is the task of Mu, to lovingly watch over this difficult, difficult question all through the night in this wild, wild journey. Is the task of loving this impossible question, even when you hate it, deep in it, you have to love it for it to do its work. This ungraspable question, which is exactly, exactly as ungraspable as you. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.